0: I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John John chapter 17 We're in the midst of looking at the what's called the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ Last week we looked at the first 5 verses where Jesus prayed for himself This week we'll look at the middle section, verses 6 through 19, where he prays for his disciples, the 11 disciples who are there with him as he's about to go to the cross. And then in two weeks we will look at the final section where he prays for the church that will result from the apostolic ministry. John chapter 17, this morning we'll be reading verses 6 through 19. Please give your careful attention to God's word. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's take a moment to pray. Father... In the midst of all the distractions of this world, we come now to the quietness of this place to hear your word. Your word is truth. And your word has the power to change our minds and our hearts and our lives. Father, we pray that your word might be made clear. That we might forget ourselves and be caught up in Christ as we hear him speak by his word. We pray in his name. Amen. As most of you know, I'm a baseball fan and I've been a Pittsburgh Pirates fan all my life. But I, up until a couple years ago, spent almost 20 years in the Philadelphia area. And during that 20 years, I very slowly came to adopt the Phillies as my second team, my other team. I know some true fans don't understand how you can have two teams, but I fully embraced the Phillies. And actually, the last five years that we lived there, from 2007 to 2012, was a really good time to be a Phillies fan. And during that time, one of the most important people to the Philadelphia Phillies was a guy named Harvey Dorfman. Harvey Dorfman. Never heard of him. Didn't play center field. Didn't pitch out of the bullpen, wasn't a coach, wasn't a manager. Harvey Dorfman is probably the best-known sports psychologist. He made a name for himself by developing a way of working with professional athletes to help them become mentally sharp so that they can perform well on the field. And three of the key pitchers, three pitchers that the Phillies relied on very strongly during that era... Brad Lidge, Roy Halladay, and Jamie Moyer, all three of those guys credit Harvey Dorfman with basically saving their careers. All of them went through a period where they lost the ability to pitch, practically, and it was through this sports psychologist that they gained the mental ability to overcome mental barriers so that they could perform according to their gifts. Older Pirate fans will remember Steve Blass, Steve Blass, in the early 70s, was one of the best pitchers in baseball. In 1972, he won 19 games. In 1973, he couldn't throw a strike. And by 1974, he was out of baseball completely. Too bad Harvey Dorfman wasn't around back in the early 70s. Yogi Berra once said, baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical. Physical. Obviously, the mental part was a challenge for yogi, but (laughs) it is really true, and I think it's one of the reasons I love the sport of baseball, is that it is a very mental sport. It's more about what's going on in the head than it is often than what's going on in the rest of the body, and many aspects of the game rely more on thinking well than performing well in terms of your physical gifts. Jamie Moyer, writing about Harvey Dorfman, said this. He says, Many of us are blessed with God given talents for the baseball field, but few of us figure out the mental part of baseball in order to truly succeed. I bring all this up because I've come to see over many years of not only being a Christian, but being a leader in Christ's church, that the mental aspect of being a disciple is also crucial to fulfilling our mission and our calling as disciples. The mental aspect of being a a disciple is so important to becoming everything that we were saved in order to be. Paul says in Romans 12, chapter chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's interesting he's put it that way. Because... When we think about our need to change, a lot of times our thoughts first go to our desires and our will. That that's what really needs to change. We have a stubborn, rebellious will, and our desires are, are filled with lust. And so we think about the need to change in our desires and our will, but change really begins in the mind, doesn't it? that as our mind changes, so our will and our desires change along with it. And in many ways, that transformation of the mind is foundational to the real change of Christ-likeness that occurs in the life of a disciple. Here in John 17, we are listening in as Jesus prayed for his disciples. As I said, he prayed first for himself in this great prayer, And then he prayed for those 11 disciples that were still with him that he had been with for three years. And as he's praying this prayer, you can tell in the background he's fully conscious and he keeps mentioning it. He's going to the Father. He's about to go to the Father by way of the cross. He is about to offer up his perfect life as a sacrifice for you and me. And there on the cross to bear the wrath that our sins deserved. And then having paid the price in full, crying out, it is finished, as he died and breathed his last breath on the cross, he then was raised from the dead on the third day and ascended to the right hand of God the Father in heaven, where he now reigns as king over all. He knew that that departure was imminent. Matter of fact, within hours. And so he's praying for his disciples as he's about to, in a sense, leave them. Even though he has already assured them that a better presence is coming in the form of the Holy Spirit. He is soon going to say to these same 11 disciples, he's going to say to them, go and make disciples of all nations. Talk about a calling. Talk about a mission. Go and make disciples of all nations. All nations. But he has also made reference back in chapter 16. He told them that once he's arrested, once he's taken to the cross, they're all going to scatter and abandon him. How in the world could Jesus Christ be confident that these 11 disciples could even begin the mission, let alone complete the mission that he was about to give to them? Well, this is where I think we come back to the mental aspect of being a disciple. In any sport, the mental aspect is a lot about confidence. It's about mental preparation and confidence. Well, how can we be mentally prepared and confident for the mission that is to be entrusted to us? Jesus is praying for those apostles, those 11 disciples, but much of what he says also applies to us. They had unique authority as his spokesmen, as his prophets, so to speak, who would be able to speak with authority with the word of God itself. We don't have that authority. We are not able to speak the word of God as they were. But their mission has been passed on to us. And the word, the word of Christ, through them has also been passed along to us. So this same prayer really, in most ways, applies to us as well. Because we are carrying on that apostolic mission to go and make disciples Of all nations. So how did Jesus view his disciples? How did he look at them? How could he have confidence that they would be able to do the mission that he called them to do? Three main ideas come out of this prayer. The first idea is that these disciples were chosen. Secondly, that they were kept and would be kept until the end. And thirdly, that they were sent under his authority. Chosen, kept, and sent. And I'm convinced that if we could understand how those terms apply to us as disciples, how we are chosen, we are kept, and we are sent, we will conquer a major amount of the mental discipline and mental preparation that we need to do what he has called us to do. Let's look at the first one. Jesus saw in this prayer his disciples as belonging to him and the father they belonged first to the father and to him and that belonging to the father and the son was based in the father's choice of them look at how he words in verse six praying to the father jesus says i have manifested your name in other words i have shown who you are to these sinners i have shown these sinners who you are I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Now that's interesting language, and I don't think we tend to think of ourselves that way. That we belong to the Father, and the Father gave us to the Son. Of course, we all belong to the Father through creation. All created beings belong to the Creator. That's not a hard concept. Anybody can understand that. But that's not the sense in which Jesus is saying that these disciples belong to the Father. He's talking about a special belonging, a belonging by choice. In verse 9, he makes that special ownership clear. In other words, he's saying, these disciples that have been with me for three years... These disciples, in a special way, apart from being created by the Father, they belong to the Father in a special way. He says, I'm not, in verse 9, he says, I'm not praying for the world. And we've already seen he uses the word, the term world in this context to refer to those who are in rebellion, those who have rejected the word of Christ, those who have refused to acknowledge him as the Messiah. So those that are outside of grace. He says, I'm not praying for the world. He's not praying for the mankind that's still in darkness and rebellion, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. You see, he's talking about a special belonging of the disciples, not through creation, but through choice. And we know from the rest of the New Testament, as the apostles explained how this came about, that those who belong to Christ... First belonged to the Father because the Father looked at the mass of humanity before the foundation of the world that had rejected him, turned their back on him, rebelled in him, and cursed him, and went away from him, and he chose to save for himself some. The scriptures are clear on that. And he said to that special group of people, not special in and of themselves, but special because he chose them, He says to that group of people, I will be your God, you will be my people. And he entered into a covenant with them. So they belonged by covenant to God. And Jesus goes on here to say in this prayer, you gave them to me. He says, all mine are yours and yours are mine. They share ownership of that people who were chosen by God before the foundation of the world to belong to him, those covenant people. He chose them to belong to him. The Father gave his chosen people to Christ and Christ received them as Redeemer. We call Christ Redeemer. You know what that term means, what that title means for Christ. It means he bought us back. He bought us back. Our sin should separate us from God, but he paid the price for sin he bought us out of slavery to sin and death and purchased us so that we belong to the father and the son they are co-owners of this special chosen group of people and that's the source of our confidence god chose us and the son redeemed us we belong to him twice over And we belong to both the Father and the Son. That's why Jesus earlier in chapter 15, verse 16 said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So remember that as you go and bear fruit. That ultimately, it's not your choice that determined your standing with God. It's his choice of you. That's the consistent teaching of scripture. That doesn't mean that we don't make a real choice. We do make a real choice, but our choice is a result of his choice of us. That's the scriptural perspective. I can't present this teaching without going to the classic passage on it. And if this is a new teaching to you or something you struggle with, I encourage you to spend a lot of time studying Ephesians 1. Let me read to you how Paul describes the entire work of our salvation in Ephesians chapter 1. I'll begin in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That's the key phrase. He chose us before the foundation of the world according to his will In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Do you hear the emphasis in that great passage? That our salvation is based upon his gracious choice of us, which was based upon his will alone. The Father predestined us according to the purpose of his will. So the purpose for which he chose us, or the, the basis on which he chose us, was in his will and not in anything in us. When I was nine years old, I was very, very excited. I loved baseball even at that age, and I was very excited to try out for Little League. And so I went to the, the tryout sessions. I think there was a couple of them. And at the end of the second or third tryout session... They put up a list of the names of all the boys who had made the Little League team. My name wasn't on the list, and I was crushed, totally crushed. I was so crushed that I couldn't even talk about it when I got home. I wouldn't even answer my mom when she asked whether I made the team or not. Next day, when it came time to go to, I thought was going to go to my first practice, I actually lied, and I told my mom I actually made the team. So she had to take me to practice. So I showed up the first practice. The coach either didn't want to make a little nine-year-old boy feel bad, or figured he'd made some mistake in his paperwork, but he didn't kick me off the team. He let me keep on coming. So I was on that little league team that whole year. But I felt terrible. <laughs> felt like I shouldn't be there. Felt guilty the whole season. I felt guilty because I knew that in the coach's eyes I wasn't good enough. I shouldn't be there. Well, praise God that being among the disciples of Christ is not based on being good enough. That your status of having been forgiven your sins through the atoning blood of Christ, being a child of God, being an heir of the kingdom, is not based on being good enough. In Romans 9, it says that God the Father has mercy on whomever he wills. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I'll admit to you that when I was learning this theology, this scriptural teaching in college, I hated that teaching. The idea that salvation is ultimately based in eternity on God's choice and not on our choice, because I'm an American. We Americans love choice. We champion our power to choose. But boy, once I bowed a knee to scripture and said, even if I don't like this doctrine, I have to admit the scriptures teach it. Once I bowed a knee to scripture and accepted it, a great deal of deep security came into my faith. To understand that my status with God was based upon the sovereign will of God which cannot be thwarted or changed, and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That I cannot lose this relationship with God that means so much to me because it's based on his choice and the redeeming work of Christ. How do we know that we're chosen? The same way that the first disciples knew that they were chosen. Jesus describes it there in verse 8. By their response to his words. He says... They became disciples by their response to his words, which was resulting from the choice that the father made. He says, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. He's basically described saving faith there. Receive the words of Christ, come to know them as truth, understand and know them as truth, and believe. Believe. That's what happens to those whom God chooses. When God chooses you, he sends his Holy Spirit to regenerate your heart, to awaken you to the truth, to open your eyes, to open your ears, to soften your heart so that you will receive, come to know and understand and believe that the words of Jesus Christ are true. I am so thankful... That every day when I wake up, I don't need to look to my own performance in the past or even in the future. I look to the sovereign choice of God, which happened before the world was created, and the atoning work of Christ, which happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. Secondly, Jesus, as he prays for his disciples, teaches them to understand that they are kept by the Father and the Son. Look at verse 11. Jesus prays explicitly, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Down in verse 12, he says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name. I have guarded them. Isn't it good to know that in your relationship with God, in your calling as his disciple, you are kept by both the Father and the Son? You are kept. How could the disciples be sure that they wouldn't fall back into their old ways? of sin and unbelief, once Christ had ascended to the Father. How could they be sure that they would not go back to the old ways? Jesus is teaching them in this prayer that they would need to trust in the keeping power of the Son and the Father. Churches have long argued over a doctrine called Perseverance of the Saints, The question is basically, is it possible for those who have been chosen by God, who profess faith and follow Christ, to ever choose not to be saved, to fall away and be lost? The disciples, at this point, would have had great reason for that fear because they had just watched one of their own walk away. Judas had just left their number. They didn't fully understand what he was about to do. But as it became clear that he had betrayed Jesus Christ and the disciples, and that he had destroyed himself, I'm sure that many of them thought, as they did when Jesus mentioned that one of them would betray him, they would say, could this happen to me? Could I be the one who turns away and falls away? The first church that I began attending regularly after I was a brand new, after I became a Christian as a brand-new believer was a church in the Wesleyan tradition, and in Wesleyan theology, they teach that our salvation is ultimately based upon our choice to follow Christ and to be his disciple. And so therefore, being consistent with that, they believe that you can choose not to be saved. If being saved is based ultimately in my choice, then obviously remaining saved and staying saved until the end is ultimately based on our choice. And I, the, I went to a church that was in that theological tradition, And the one thing I remember, even though I had good Christian friends there, the one thing I remember about that church experience was how they had revival services two or three times a year and how my friends, my Christian friends, would keep going down the aisle and accepting the Lord over and over and over again. That they were so fearful of their own ability to keep following Christ, to keep believing that they kept going back down to recommit their life. And what I saw in them, even though it was so great to have Christian friends, what I saw in them was a fear and an insecurity that troubled me, even though I didn't understand the problem with it at the time. Jesus says here, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's making it clear to his disciples that this one, Judas, who did fall away, who did profess faith but did fall away, he's making it clear that that was not a surprise to him. It was not a surprise to Jesus. It was not a surprise to God the Father. Matter of fact, it was a part of the plan. It was a fulfillment of Scripture. The term son of destruction means one who's destined to be destroyed. It's the same title. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. And it's used for the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians. The man of lawlessness is called a son of destruction. Judas' unbelief and Judas' betrayal and Judas' rejection of the truth was part of the Father's plan. He chose what he wanted to choose. God did not make him deny Christ. God did not make him betray Christ. He chose what his dark, sinful, unregenerate heart wanted as it is with anybody who doesn't believe in Christ. That's why John, the same writer of this Gospel of John, would later say in 1 John chapter 2, talking about false teachers. He's basically talking about false teachers and actually is relating them to the Antichrist, one who is a son of destruction, and he says about them, these are people who had professed faith, who had been a part of the church, but had left the church and had fallen away, He says, they went out from us. This is 1 John 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it may become plain that they are not of us. Do you hear the perspective of Jesus' high priestly prayer in the background of what he says there? These false teachers, even though they fell away, even though they seemed to believe and fell away in the eyes of men, From God's perspective, they were never chosen and never kept because they were never truly a part of the covenant. They were never truly saved. And we don't know the hearts of people. We don't know when somebody falls away, maybe it's only a temporary falling away. Maybe they truly are chosen of of God by the Father before the foundation of the world and someday they will come back. We don't know hearts, only he can tell for sure. But we know that we are in the faith as we've already seen because we receive the word of Christ we come to know it as truth and we believe it and live our lives accordingly. That's what happens to people who are born again by the grace of Jesus Christ. A better term for pres- or perseverance of the saints is the preservation of the saints. Because it's not that we preserve, per- per- persevere by our own strength and our faith in any way. It's that The Father and the Son keep us. They preserve us. They guard us. When we wander, they bring us back by the power of the Spirit. That is their promise. In chapter 10, Jesus spoke of this security. This is security that is meant to all of you who have experienced the power of the Holy Spirit and have been born again and have received the truth. Here is the promise that Jesus gives in chapter 10, beginning in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That is incredible security. To know that I am in the grip of the Father and I am in the grip of the Son and nothing can take me out of that grip because Christ died for my sins and I have been reconciled to God for eternity. That's security. That gives you confidence. That's theology, yes, that tells you how to think about yourself, about God, and about the world that will make you effective in service. Thirdly, Jesus teaches his disciples through this prayer that they are sent by the Father and the Son. They are sent by the Father and the Son. Look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, the world has hated them, the disciples, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. When he says that, it kind of begs the question, if keeping us, protecting us, holding us in the grip, If that's really the ultimate purpose of the Father and the Son, then why not take us out of this fallen world right now? Why not just take us to heaven? Isn't that the best way to keep us and and make sure that uh, we are not lost? Well, it goes to our mission, doesn't it? Why are we here? Why has he left us here, continuing as sinners in the process of being sanctified, being made like Christ in a fallen world? Why are we here? It's so that we can fulfill the mission. Back at the end of chapter 15, he told us that we are here and he would give us his word and his spirit so that we could bear witness to Christ. And so that promise to protect us is so important. He will keep us so that by the word and the Holy Spirit, we can be faithful and effective in completing the mission he's given us, which is to bear witness to Christ, to go and make disciples of all nations. He says, I am not taking them out of the world. As a matter of fact, I am sending them into the world. He says that he is sending them as he was sent. Martin Luther said that we should have a profane faith. A profane faith. Not in the modern sense of the word profane, which means basically irreligious or sacrilegious sacrilegious or, or rebellious, but profane in the original Latin sense of the word, which means out of the temple. That our faith should not be a faith that draws us all together only to worship and fellowship among ourselves, but it be a faith that takes us out into the marketplace, out into the workplace, out into the neighborhoods. It's to be a faith among the world, a light in the midst of the darkness. And so Jesus prays in verse 17... He prays for his disciples and also for us. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now we tend to think of the word sanctify as meaning to make us more holy or make us more righteous or make us more like Christ. And that is one meaning of the word. But that's not its primary meaning. The primary meaning is to set something or someone apart to serve God. To belong to God. To be set apart unto God and, and to serve him. That's what to sanctify means, to, to be holy means in its pure sense, in its basic sense. And that's really in the sense he's using it here, that by his word he is setting us apart from the world. And it's the, that's the reason that we study the word, the reason that we proclaim the word, the reason we live by the word is so that we can fulfill the mission to which we've been called, which is to make disciples of all nations. Jesus says, "'As you sent me into the world, Father, so I have sent them into the world.'" That's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I love how he puts it there at the end of chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. Paul says, "'All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation.'" That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation.'" Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors of Christ. He's speaking of the original disciples, and we have carried on that mission, to be ambassadors for Christ. I looked up the dictionary meaning for ambassadors. It means a diplomatic official of the highest rank sent by a government to represent it on a temporary mission. That's what an ambassador is. That's what you are on behalf of King Jesus. You are a high-ranking official, officially representing the kingdom of God, taking the message, the word of the king, to those who desperately need to hear it, calling upon them to believe and to repent and submit and come to him. That's our mission. The world can try to shut down the king's embassies. The world can persecute and try to squelch the testimony of the king's ambassadors. But Jesus is on the throne. He is Lord. He is coming again. And his kingdom will fill the universe. Thinking well. Thinking well which means thinking in line with God's word, is essential to spiritual maturity and effective service to God. That's a basic principle you need to understand for what it means to be a disciple. Let me say it again. Thinking well, which means thinking in line with the word of God, thinking God's thoughts after him, is essential to spiritual maturity and effective service to God. R.C. Sproul says, the only thing that rescues you from yourself is a true understanding of God, a true understanding of Christ, a true understanding of your hopeless condition, and a true understanding of grace. And I would add to that a true understanding of who you are as a disciple of Christ. You are chosen, you are kept, and you are sent by the Lord of Lords. That's who you are, by his grace. And those truths that you belong to him and that you represent him in this fallen world will produce in you boldness and confidence in service. Let me just close with this promise, which I think summarizes this part of Jesus' prayer. This is in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the source of great confidence. Let's pray. Father, we want to do well in the mission that you have granted to us. Thank you for sending us, Lord. But we are weak, we are sinful, there is still so much of the world in the way that we think and act. Father, help us to rest in the promises that you have made in your word to continue to complete the good work that you began in us which began before the foundation of the world. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for keeping us. Thank you for the assurance that you will continue to keep us. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful, make us effective, make us bold and confident in our witness to Christ as his ambassadors. We pray in Christ's name, amen.